0: Hello, I am your NBN host, uh, Lavinia Stan, a professor of uh, political science at St. Francis Xavier University in Canada. I'm talking today with Ryan Manucha, do I uh, pronounce uh, uh, well, (laughs) Um, about the book he just published in 2022 entitled Booze, Cigarettes and Constitutional Dust Ups. Canada's quest for interprovincial free trade. Ryan is currently a Fellow of the Brian Mulroney Institute of Government at uh, San Francis Xavier University, which has facilitated this interview. Named for its champion and main fundraiser, former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, and housed uh, in a state of the art uh, complex. <laughs> The Institute brings together public policy scholars from a variety of fields. It also offers an excellent undergraduate public policy program, the coordinator of which I was in 2019-2020. Welcome to New Books Network, Ryan.
1: Thank you so much, Lavinia. It's such an honor and pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you very much for accepting this interview about your recent book, which was the 10th volume published by mcgill Queens um, in collaboration with uh, the Brian Mulroney Institute of Government Studies. And the volume is featured in a series titled uh, Leadership, Public Policy and Governance. Uh, here at uh, uh, Fex. Before we turn to the book, could you tell our listeners a bit about your academic trajectory, for them to get a feeling of um, where you are coming from um, and um, what uh, brought you um, here today, uh, this uh, particular um, step in your career?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, it started um, back, I pursued undergraduate studies in economics at Yale University in the US. And there, uh, my studies really helped me understand um, the basic building block uh, uh, in terms of tooling set for policymakers when it comes to understanding the uh, rigorous uh, econometrics and economic theory. And while uh, I was there, I was Bust with opportunities to help with some research for professors, and also some policy experience at the Ontario Securities Commission and at the Canadian Embassy in Washington, D.C. at the uh, within the Economic Trade Policy Branch, and so there I was really able to appreciate and learn um, a good deal about the um, the rigorous you know maths and and theory that goes into uh, trade policy, and then after. Uh, economics uh, undergrad I pursued a, a law degree at uh, Harvard Law School where I uh, dove into the world of international trade law and studied under uh, some very uh, uh, very uh, very knowledgeable professors who sort of showed me uh, the basics and more than the basics on international trade law and policy um, to, and because of those two experiences, I was able to combine uh, the economics and the law at, at once. <clears throat> and while I was at law school, that was where uh, it was a really interesting moment in Canadian history. When I mean, we've had internal trade wars throughout post uh, our post post confederation history, but it was Alberta. This was in 2018 or 2019, trying to get bitumen out to. The west coast and british columbia saying no uh, that's that's not what we want to allow essentially blocking the movement of of this good bitumen out to the coast by way of pipeline and in response alberta retaliated by curtail or attempting to and curtailing the sale of bc wine in alberta liquor stores and being a student of international trade law and being a student of international trade economics i was like oh this is utterly destructive for the Canadian economy and how is this even permissible within a single nation state and that was the spark of my journey and uh, deep dive and exploration and study of internal trade law in Canada and in uh, the study of internal trade law or the study of internal trade I should say is extremely multidisciplinary you're looking at you know various components of law you're looking at constitutional law administrative law international trade law and then you know you also have to look at canadian political history and economic history and then also you have to bring together that that you know that uh, more empirical and uh, mathematical economics to help understand the uh, impact on trade flows and the costs to the canadian economy and not to mention a great deal of um, Appreciation for the social and political forces at play, um, because you know, as much as we may pursue internal trade for maximal economic growth, um, we may be also similarly or more concerned about things that uh, may run antithetical to uh, liberalized trade. For example, you know, uh, environmental protection laws or, or uh, public public interest laws that curtail movement of goods or services for the you know for the public. Um, May be important to us as well, not just maximal economic growth.
0: So, so you are you are a Canadian. I sense that you are actually from Ontario. Is it uh, correct?
1: <laughs> that is correct.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so your undergrad was in economics uh, in the U.S. Why, why the decision to go to the U.S. to study? Why not? um you know pursue pursue an economics degree at the University of Toronto, for example.
1: There were so many there are so many incredible uh programs in Canada. I think I was really excited to learn uh, in a different form. We might you know joke ourselves into thinking Canada and the US are the same. They're, they're really not and I, I really wanted to understand how the uh, how the US uh, you know the, the psyche and, and the way that um, um, the United States self-organizes and has built. And that was especially the case at law school where I came to appreciate how, you know, there we have, you know, the framers of Confederation in 1867 in the US, they have the, you know, they called them the founding fathers in the late 1700s. And how did they conceive of a federal system? How did they conceive of um, importing uh, their own contemporary value set into what was coming from the British? And just understanding that, like, Everything the, the way that humans decide to self-organize really um, is so contextually determined and it's good to understand how it's done elsewhere. And because of that, you can then really appreciate how your own nation um, self-organizes.
0: So I understand correctly that um, uh, both uh, in your economics uh, st- uh, studies and in your law degree, um, you looked uh, um, at Canadian topics, and uh, the your professors were uh, were you know um, excited about this uh, about these topics how is how is canada as a as a topic of study for students for canadian students in the us how is it perceived
1: yeah i mean i absolutely wanted to make sure i was learning a lot about the us because uh you know that's where their specialty is they're able to sort of self reflect and think but then you take what uh, what i mean one example one really interesting example was um uh wonderful class I took under uh, Professor uh, Mark Tushnet on comparative constitutional law. And in that course, we explored the Canadian constitution and a lot of how Canadian jurisprudence and the way that, you know, the constitution Act 1867 and 1982 sort of frames Canada into being as sort of like a template or a model that could be used in in certain respects and as like a, as another way of constitutionalizing a country. And the way that in this class the Canadian framework was put up and elevated and raised and praised was pretty thrilling. Uh, uh, so, absolutely, I think there's there's a certain there's a great deal of respect for especially at lost with uh, the the uh, Canadian legal system and uh, you know it's 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 yeah. different approaches. If we think about you know the drafters of Confederation in 1867, a lot of what they did was influenced because of the conflagration happening in the U.S., the Civil War. And a lot of those folks were saying, hey, how can we uh, frame our country to avoid this, a similar situation from occurring here? Um, so there's always great uh, opportunity to cross-pollinate, um, best-in-class yeah, a- uh, experiment. And I think one thing that really resonated from the U.S. experience was um, legislative and you know political and policy experimentation You know, they like to think of themselves as 50 different laboratories of of testing. And it really plays out, sort of, seeing how 50 different systems under one federal framework can approach a similar issue and the various outcomes that come from it.
0: So the topics that you are interested, uh, broadly speaking, you are interested in um, uh, lie at the intersection of um, uh, trade, economics, and law. Is this, uh, would you say that this is a good uh, characterization or would you want to elaborate on it?
1: At, uh, economics, the law, and history, political science, it's, it's so multifaceted. And I think what's so interesting is that Um, You know, we haven't really thought of Canada as a domesticated version of the international trading system. Um, And we've realized over the course of, you know, especially the past 40 years, but, you know, more broadly speaking, let's say it since Confederation, the upper limits of our economic union. And I think there's so much that Canada can learn from the way uh, that other nations sort of handle their internal markets and the way that, you know, international structures have arranged global markets and port that over for, you know, uh, for our own domestic learning. And why do we care about internal trade? Like internal trade is interesting, but why do we really care about it? You know, we ca- cost of living and affordability, for example, it, to the extent that we have internal trade barriers that augment the cost of the goods and services you and I buy every day. Um, that's important. And if we can, you know, study internal trade barriers and identify causes and seek solutions, I think that's that's really important for everyone. Um, if we care about the productivity of the Canadian economy, um, you know, Canada's uh, productivity is falling off a cliff uh, and is set to be one of the worst performers in the OECD um, very soon. And if we care about this and we care about national prosperity, you know, it's n- there's no one silver bullet, but I think a very important one is uh, efficient domestic markets. And if we uh, kind of perpetuate a system where we have provincial territorial fiefdoms and it's very protectionist and businesses can't be forced to compete and become stronger and, you know, we can, you can draw the the causal linkages. I think that's what we really care about. So, you know, Internal trade for, uh, domestically has a different flavor because we care about our collective prosperity. We all pay into a tax system and, and you know, wear the same uniforms and, you know, fight for you know, one another, support each other with a PP&E during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, we should think a little bit more carefully about our economic integration, too.
0: So I uh, take it that uh, some very uh, urgent and important concerns are driving uh, um, your interest um, in um, in this topic, and this is the starting point, pretty much, of the book. Yeah, this is the foundation of the book. This this was the the question that you started. Um, uh, uh, you started uh, to explore at the very beginning, yeah. Uh, and I, I think you you mentioned uh, uh, some of the ways in which uh, interprovincial trade is important for Canada. Um, but, but um, if we were to compare ourselves with other with other federations, you would say that we are in you know, a worst. We are we are erecting this. Walls uh, between provinces. These walls are thicker in Canada than in other uh, countries. Or w- what's your comparative uh, sense of um, um, inter federal um, trade um, in these countries? Where does Canada stay um, um, among, in this ranking? You know where where does it? Hit?
1: Yeah, a very valid question. Uh, and one thing that's so interesting is we, again, I, lo- I love going back, like understanding internal trade now, you really have to go back into the past. And so we look back at 1867 and the drafters of confederation, they really ported over what was uh, a constitution from Great Britain, which was for a unitary state. It wasn't, didn't have, you know, uh, subnational governments like provinces and territories. And so when you bring that over and you hope that it applies in the same way, you can run into some problems of interpretation. And very early on, the judicial, the judicial, uh, count, uh, Privy, the Privy Council in, in the UK, which was for the longest time our highest court until 1949. You know, we, didn't, uh, we had the Canadian Supreme Court, but you could, you know, the highest court of appeal was back to Britain. And um, they were very much in uh, very cognizant of this, how something unique had been created in Canada, and were very careful to protect provincial sovereignty. And that was something that threads through Canadian constitutional law um, very well up until, you know, let's call it like the mid to late 20th century. I think more more recently, we've drifted, like, just totally looking at constitutional law, we've drifted into a zone of flexible federalism, where I think that, you know, the rise of the administrative and regulatory state is pretty, uh, can bring for some very complex regulatory regimes and sometimes they interact with the jurisdiction of another level of government. And, you know, as we'll get into in this conversation, like how do you manage that? And that is, you know, what especially when those can be the sources of trade barriers. But if we if back to your original question, like, you know, how do we compare against other countries? Um, well we can there are a couple you can compare Canada against, you know, other federal states. That's like a category. Um but we can be more specific. We can say how does you know Australia is a good comparator. Um, it's Australia's got a similar economy, you know, like really driven by primary uh, commodities, um, you know, oil, gas, minerals. It's got that same British um, uh, heritage. It's got um, a, a number of social uh, factors that that find overlap. There's a significant uh, 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 <clears throat> role of um, uh, for. Uh, so there's a, a large urbanized population um both have uh, have great um exposure they're both middle countries greatly exposed to international trading patterns and the way that australia handled it is they legislated mutual recognition agreement into the fabric of their national uh scheme legislative schema so whereas canada in the early 90s adopted the approach of a of a international of a domestic trade agreement. Australia went even farther in like saying we're actually going to like give this the level of legislation. We're not just going to create a political agreement, which I think is really powerful. And they even have a national body called the Productivity Commission that goes out and sort of sources these trade, identifies them, raises them for consideration and draws focus and attention and political will. Um Compared to, you know, the European Union and every, the European Union similarly has a much stronger approach towards internal trade barriers. There's a very strong philosophy of mutual recognition that runs through the way that uh, the European Union does business. And I think that's really, that's another model for Canada to sort of look at and see like, okay, what do the next 50 years look like for the economic union? I think the economic, uh, the European Union is a good guidepost. And in the US, US is an interesting one. Obviously, it's got its own uniqueness. It doesn't have the same sort of, um, you know, uh, commonwealth sort of setup. But it's also got um, a federal, it's also a federal state. But I think what distinguishes the US in part is that it's got a a much stricter judicial test for trade barriers internally. And I think that helps guard against, uh, to a greater degree, internal trade barriers than in Canada. So, I think Australia and the European Union are very good, um, you know, t- uh, models for us to consider when we're considering comparative uh, um, states of internal trade.
0: Mm-hmm. This is this is a compelling uh, argument what you laid uh, here. Uh, I'm a, I want to go uh, uh, back to the title, and I just wonder: um, Are cigarettes and booze at the heart of interprovincial trade? Or this title is like a hook for the audience to um, become interested in the book. Yeah, let's explain. Let's explain to non-Canadian and Canadian listeners what does this trade cover.
1: Oh, it's the uh, booze, cigarettes. You know, Canada's internal trade story is really found throughout the products that we really care about. And things that didn't make it to that title, for example, include margarine, they include turkeys, they include a a lot of booze, quite frankly, but eggs and chicken. It's all manner of goods, especially goods that uh, could have also made that list. But booze and cigarettes definitely turn heads. So (laughs) Um, and why do they matter? I think um, booze and cigarettes are subjects of of uh, trade battles, domestic trade battles, because largely because governments derive a ton of revenue for their sale, and so where they can defend those markets, they are better off. And the most recent story of this was Gerard Cumo, who um, you know his 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 travels from New Brunswick to Quebec to go buy cheaper beer in New Brunswick saying no no um we've got a uh, our own skis uh, our own system in place we want you to buy a booze domestically because they derive you know let's call it 40 million dollars in in hsd and 120 i could be wrong on these numbers i am from just uh, instant recall here and something like 120 million dollars in in profit to the to the uh to the uh province which is money that goes towards you know public health funding education funding like things that we really care about so as much as we can be cynical oh this is just like a cash grab for the government at the same time yeah it's a cash grab but the cash is going towards like meaningful public public uh, services so like you, you can't you can't like ignore that um but uh so but it goes as far back as the first internal trade barrier case 1921 era of prohibition this time, it wasn't so much about raising revenue, but it was about, you know, <laughs> what was moral back then. And uh, you had the prohibition era uh, folks who were tito tattlers who didn't want the sale of booze, uh, you know, m- moral purity issues. And there were folks who did. And so, you know, using booze as a way to, you know, it, the, it, it was an internal trade barrier case. But it was it was really using that provision to see if they could get their alcohol. In notwithstanding the uh, restrictions of, of temperance, um, and uh, another instance, you know, nineteen forties Atlantic Smoke Shop case uh, out in New Brunswick uh, about whether or not uh, a province was able to charge a sales tax on cigarettes. Like this was stuff that we all, you and I like think about as like it's it's expected like fully within. But you know, there was some in early Canada a lot of things were still being figured out, including whether or not provinces were entitled to levying sales taxes. And so anyways, in that case, it was really fascinating case that went all the way to the Privy Council in England, and argued by a man who uh, had, you know, he was a well known communist who was, uh, you know, had defended Ho Chi Minh in an extradition case. And um, here he is, essentially, like, the side he was essentially arguing for was the side of let's call it Big Tobacco. They were trying to prevent these taxes from being layered on at the permit, And so like, it's an interesting side for him to take anyways. He was the, the lawyer on the case. Um, but it really is about the things that we care about. And they, they like, uh, we get margarine is another one. You know, margarine was invented in France in the 1800s to deal with a food crisis. And uh, you have a ton of dairy farmers in South, Southwestern Ontario who, for whom margarine was a real threat to their dairying. So, they were doing all they could in the late 1800s to you know, essentially write it out of existence. And they used the criminal prohibition powers to sort of say, hey, we're, we're not going to deal with this. And people, you can look at the debates back then, there was a lot of arguments about health and safety. But what it really was was, you know, um, this is threatening the dairy industry. And um, this. You know, margarine being sort of a manifestation of internal trade barriers, and it's, it represents local interests seeking protection. I mean, even until very recently, it was difficult, uh, if not impossible, to buy margarine in Quebec, and it had to be of a, a white color. You know, it couldn't even look attractive. It looked like lard. Um, so, yeah, 100%. It's such a rich history inside of our products, especially the ones that... uh are very uh, inel- have very inelastic demand curves if we pull the economic parlance out too. So, uh,
0: so uh, let's be very spe- as specific as possible because um, uh, when I uh, uh, I have to mention that Ryan gave a talk here at CentFX and I was quite amazed that. Uh, Find out that uh, if I cross from Nova Scotia, uh, I'm a resident of Nova Scotia, and if I cross uh, the border to another province to buy, pretty much you are saying margarine, butter, booze, uh, cigarettes, uh, uh, timber, uh, furniture, uh, cars. Is that uh, also applying uh, I will have to pay uh, some extra, or I won't be able to, to import in my to bring back to my province certain products, depending on the legislation, yeah, or the choices made by the provincial government uh, where I'm residing. Is this uh, is this the what happens? Yes.
1: That's exactly. It. Internal trade barriers, they used to be really evident. You know, a tariff, a customs duty, you would see border agents at the border of upper and lower Canada monitoring the passage of goods and, you know, trying to ensure that everyone, you know, in inter, like before 1867, there were a ton of intercolonial trade barriers. We don't see that anymore. You don't see, oh, you know, if you're trying to bring wine in from Quebec, it's a 7% tariff. That's that, First of all, that's not allowed. Um, but that's not the type of trade. We're talking about really technical and, and non, non-tariff trade barriers more generally. And so, you know, for Kumo, it was a prohibition on the re-entry into Quebec in, uh, with more than 12 bottles of, of beer at the time. Uh, it can be even more subtle. Like, that one was a bit of a, an, a, an overt co- quantitative restriction, but, you know, it was kind of premised on public safety, or or you know whatever the argument they might have tried to raise. If you know, at, like right now, another example: um, in order to for a truck that's overweight or oversized to to travel across every every province needs its own permit. And you know, if you're going from you know Nova Scotia to Alberta, that requires I think like seven. And if you're going from Texas to Alberta, it's one. They don't require one in every state. You know, the inability for, you know, you have trailers uh, in, in uh, you know, the backs of trucks that they drag, trailers, and needing registration or needing to renew registration every time you enter into a new province. Another good example um, is the <clears throat> porting of qualification. If, if you're a doctor and you've been licensed to practice in a particular s- province of, of Canada, trying to port those qualifications over. And it's, you know, sometimes, oh, you know, if you do this test, if you pay that fee, But what Canada needs to recognize is like every one of those, anytime you introduce a friction to movement, you know, that's that's what we're talking about here. We're not like these glaring like border guards. It's not what and and the if you talk to many, you know, economic actors, you say, Hey, you know, do you encounter trade barriers in your day-to-day? Oh no, no, I don't I don't see that. Um, but they'll say, okay. So if you try to move your 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 tow, can you move your tow truck from Ontario to Quebec? Say, oh, well, I no, it's you know, it exceeds the weight limit. Or you know, can you um, you, you produce meat out of your provincially regulated factory in Alberta? Can you get that over into Saskatchewan? say oh actually no not without going through this you know federal abattoir it's like not recognizing that what they're encountering is a trade barrier and sort of accepting it as a cost of goods and the biggest thing that's surfacing is that it's in the data the trade barriers are in the economic data but folks On the ground don't use the vernacular of trade barriers when they discuss what they're encountering they think of it as you know i don't know just again cost of business when and and for smaller businesses who can't afford to handle the compliance or the financial issues related to those those decisions like you know uh trying to bring your car over from from uh, British Columbia to Alberta, if you already just had your inspection done, why do you need to have your inspection done again in Alberta, like there's something about us being under one common citizenship that I think entitles us to a degree of, you know, mutual recognition of of the standards and the testing procedures undertaken in one province as satisfying those in another.
0: well said, well said. And uh, you bring all these examples and many more in your book, which is a very dense book with uh, no fewer than 15 uh, chapters. Could you please uh, walk us uh, through your argument and uh, the way the chapters are building on each other for readers to understand uh, um, the, the various, uh, how, how you construct your arguments in these 15 chapters?
1: Well, so I started. A lot of my early research in internal trade had to do with the jurisprudence that was coming out of this super new internal trade court called. Uh, it's not doesn't have a name, but it's it's the venue where disputes over Canada's internal trade agreement are heard. There have been thirteen to date, two that have gone on to appeal, and. There, I was trying to discern what was going on and the case law that was unfolding and trying to help guide future panelists and judges on how to decide future cases. But I realized like so much, you know, a a lawyer appreciates the origins of a law and and, you know, understanding how we got to where we are now and the institutions that exist really require starting from the beginning. And that really comes from, in my book, the 1840s, because you need to understand the Constitution. And in order to understand the Constitution, you need to understand the people who were drafting it. What were their life experiences? What had they endured? And two big things relating to internal trade were the abrogation of the U.S. from the Free Trade Agreement in 1866 and the repeal of imperial preferences by the British in the 1840s. So within everyone's lifetime who was part- party to drafting the Constitution had been massive shocks to Canadian trade flows. And so from there, we understand the Constitution, why it, how it exists. And then we follow the course of Canadian constitutional political legal history to the present day. And we understand, you know, we, we look at the case law in you know, the butter and the cigarettes and the booze and the interpretations of the Constitution. And then, you know, overlaying all of this, the book delves into, OK, well, how was economic thinking evolving over this period of time? and how was Canadian federalism evolving over this period of time and what becomes apparent is that by the time you get to the early 1990s which is when we got our internal our first internal trade agreement it was sort of uh, stars had aligned we'd had and so in the book I, I argued like it was at that point in time where it was possible to make the kind of decision to enter into an internal trade agreement as we did and you know i discuss you know, it was the right time politically, domestically and abroad. There was the rel- the necessary competence at federal and provincial governments. We'd just been through 10 rounds, uh, 10 years of nonstop negotiating international trade agreements. There was a great degree of capacity in uh, provincial and federal governments. And then once we establish the, the timeliness and the need for an internal trade agreement, I then bring the reader forward and I say, how has it worked? We've had 30 years of operation of this agreement. How has it worked? What's the diagnosis? And what's, what, what's the trajectory? Where are we heading towards? And so using this, this you know, time continuum, arguing like, okay, here is how the constitutional law is likely to evolve. And that's where I get to in my book. And I, and I have some predictions for the next 20, 30 years. But then I also underscore that a lot of the internal trade barrier resolution is going to be done through Canadian intergovernmental collaboration. And it's because of what we talked about earlier. The Constitution gives so much power to the provinces and to the federal government. And trade barriers can't be comprehensively understood until you have a mechanism that helps with that overlap. Um, and it's a really creative solution. You know, world's first inter, you know, holy intergovernment, like we, it, we, the only country who essentially took what the W2 has and it, it domesticated it and so we're first in time on this and there isn't a lot to learn from from other nation states we can learn from the wto we can learn from bodies like nafta and mercosur and the eu and the ec um but we're learning a lot on our own and so i think what i also argue is now is a good time to reflect and given everything about you know our drive for you know our productivity falling off of a map and then um, domestic competition at level. The Competition Bureau recently came out with a stunning study that showed the absolute falling off of a uh, diminishment of, of competition within Canada. Um, so a, a lot of reasons to refocus and think about how internal trade um, is, is important for so many reasons.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, this uh, this uh, was very good uh, to have this outline of your argument. You know, now um, after you completed this project, what do you think are the main lessons that Canadians and possibly others uh, might draw from uh, from your book? Uh, it seems to me, for example, that although there is an argument there to be made that the government. Uh, through all these um, the fees and uh, you know that they uh, they collect uh, they can um, they can um, uh, cover other social programs. It seems to me that it's very cumbersome. Uh, it, it's it's very cumbersome for us the ordinary people. Yeah it it might be good for the government but it's another way of taxation in a way it, it's another way of making payments to the government that might not be as glaring as uh, you know as your income tax when you have to <laughs> when it, when you know when you know what the or how much the government uh, uh, is um, Is taking out of your income, you know. So, what what would you say uh, are the most important lessons? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, that's. I mean, let's take another example: workers' compensation. It is very difficult to get workers' comp coverage if you're not from that province. And so what does that do? Like it makes it very difficult for companies to reallocate and redistribute labor workforces for, you know, folks who are, or, uh, you know, for opportunities that require that kind of workers' comp that you can't get under the current scheme. Like overall, like the matching, like if I think of as an, as an economist, the matching of supply and demand is hindered when you have this structures like workers' comp or, or for example, um, you know, uh, occupational health safety d- uh, differences, the right differences in regulation and meaning that like only the really big companies can afford to monitor and handle Thirteen different regimes, and so it really benefits large, entrenched, established players who, you know, may have justifiable reason to want to continue these kinds of barriers. Right? It, it position it strengthens their position. They're the only ones who can navigate the fairly complex terrain. Um, and you know, you can get into the argument about like regulatory capture and and um, the relationship between uh, you know stakeholders and the regulatory process to maintain you know, uh, competitive moats, uh, through, through, uh, laws and rules. Um, I think what we, co- well, like some of the big lessons for us is that like the, it's, it's exhausting where we're talking about like the reconciliation of divergent building codes of, of construction of electrical codes. But if you take, a you know, this is where I think where Canada needs to go is like appreciating that, like, these it's internal trade barriers sort of have been re are redefined and we need to open our minds up to like what could constitute a hindrance for our overall prosperity. And again, you may want restriction that. And I think any regime like Australia's internal trade uh, uh, mutual recognition act, you know, the way that the EU does it, they always allow for legitimate policy reasons to prevent the application of Liberalized mechanisms, right? Like the you know in, in Australia, they'll say, "Oh, you know, if you're uh, certified for this occupation in in New South Wales, you sh- and you're, you're certified, you're able to practice that occupation in Queensland." And but they do say, "Oh, except where you know it, this might impact health, safety, or the environment." Like they they are mindful of legitimate policy reasons for wanting to impose restrictions. But in those cases, there's always guardrails in place so a canadians need to we need to expand the dialogue and help other help industry and government appreciate how wide ranging and how subtle trade barriers can be and then also appreciate that reconciling them we're we're talking like with construction codes we started diverging along very different paths as early as the early 1900s due to like local events like fires floods whatever and then you know insurance companies would come along and say okay now you have to build your buildings this way or that way you know as a result of like local events and all of a sudden you then had very divergent building codes over the course of many decades as one contributing factor i'm sure there are others and so appreciating that like It does take time and sustained engagement to, you know, either, you know, to to reconcile and and to harmonize these different regimes, or if we're going to pursue this alternative model, which is called mutual recognition, where, you know, you say, uh, I'll I'll recognize the way that you guys do it and say, if it's essentially, if it's good enough for you, it's good enough for us. That one requires the building of trust because in order to do that, you kind of have to have confidence. in The way that you know, I have to believe that the College of Teachers in Nova Scotia, you know, certifies and trains the trains teachers to the same standard as I would expect Ontario. Once you hit those thresholds, it's very easy to have those levels of understanding. So, uh, and so the second point of this to summarize is um, it's a it's a gradual and incremental and and uh, uh, some could say taxing. Um, process, but it's worth it, and I can show one data point on why it's worth it: the reconciliation of building codes across the country. Uh, you know, they've estimated the savings to be about a billion dollars a year. Like, if you talk, if you like, take your business or e- economic, you think about the return on investment, and you can like really model out the costs to reconcile and weigh that against the benefits, the future benefits, and and bring those discount those into the present. And the the calculus will weigh in your favor, and where it doesn't, you can reconsider, but you know it, it's a lot of hard work but you know Canadians are all the better for it
0: so uh, it seems to me that uh, your argument is uh, uh, for change in favor of change that that uh, um, in Canada various actors need to, to realize that uh, interprovincial um, trade uh, uh, barriers uh, um, at least some of them are more detrimental than you know, than helping uh, us. And then if change is necessary, which one would be the main actor um, responsible for this change? Because, uh, I mean, definitely the government uh, must regulate, yeah? But uh, it seems to me that, um, uh, at least for now, Corporations are uh, are heard by the government. Uh, the The government has its own interests at heart to co- to collect this uh, money. But uh, consumers, for example, or professionals, or maybe maybe the civil society or the society in general is uh, um, not uh, well organized. Or what? What's your perspective mm-hmm. here?
1: Yeah. Um, so I'd say two things. One is from, um, the, the role of the federal government. Like if we think that like every single trade barrier costs that person $1 they're like, Oh, $1, that's fine. And a province says, okay, there's a hundred people dealing with a dollar bit trade barrier. That's okay. It's a hundred dollars. The federal government is the, almost the only body in a position to say, Oh, it's a hundred dollars in Ontario, a hundred dollars in Nova Scotia, hundred. They can, they can collect and aggregate and, and sort of, uh, you know, pool um, not pool but you know like you know a, 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 yeah, aggregate the costs spread across so many and use that and their central coordinating powers and their functions and their jurisdictional powers under the constitution to be able to uh, drive at change that like a single province may not really see as acutely as the nation as a whole um, so the nation like the federal government can coordinate efforts when like the costs, you know, disparately are small, but when you know taken together, they're a massive uh, ding to the economy, and so they're well positioned for that. The second thing, more directly, to, I guess, to your question is. Um, Let's take the case study of both Canada on the reconciliation of construction of building codes and Australia in the arrival at a mutual recognition agreement, and even back in the early 90s, and even Canada in the arrival at an agreement on internal trade in the early 90s. The most important factor, I think, was the role of industry and business groups at ensuring there was sustained pressure on political leaders because internal trade barriers always cross jurisdictional lines, they cross ministries, they like they touch on everyone with any amount of power. When you're trying to reduce an internal trade barrier, generally speaking, you are saying someone's turf is going to get smaller because we're trying to limit regulation. And that hurts like, and without that forcing function coming down from up top and that forcing function getting fueled by uh, uh, business stakeholders and business and industry, you don't have that sustained, um, um, uh, momentum and, and willingness to make change because it is so easy and preferred to not rock the boat. If I'm an internal trade official and I know that, you know, what I'm recommending is going to shrink the, the, uh, you know, the scope of like five other regulators with, uh, under various ministries I'm not so inclined to pursue that. Like I need that I'm I, I, you know, that that the political, the political guidance and direction is going to become fundamental in that scenario.
0: Would you say that uh, COVID uh, impacted in any significant way uh, interprovincial trade uh, barriers or or, um, was, uh, was it not so important?
1: Yes, I think that it definitely really uh, hindered uh, internal trade liberalization, I would say. And one of the ways it did so was we started to see uh, subnational and ro- local governments and uh, even national governments, uh, but mostly subnational governments um, essentially prefer local businesses, even, in, you know, notwithstanding the public procurement obligations under the Canadian Free Trade Agreement, um, sort of... Um, To maintain the health and the vibrancy of their businesses within their jurisdiction, starting to um, consider the other consideration was a lot of the regulatory folks who were uh, who are ordinarily tasked with matters regarding our internal trade suddenly spent two and a half, three years on um, COVID related regulatory issues. And so it really. Um, set us back by a number of years, I think, because either, you know, there's finite time and capacity and COVID regulatory matters came to the top. And so it, so just internal trade issues kept dropping down uh, as a result of priorities. So it did, it did have an impact. Um, For example, I mean, we haven't seen the addition. So the, the Canada's governments maintain this list, this roster of Um, internal matters for resolution, uh, trade barriers that are, you know, under consideration for resolution. And not a single one was added in the past calendar year. Um, And I think that there are a number of reasons for that, but I think one is just that diverted attention um, to uh, uh, other things.
0: Um, If you were to... um... Reissue the book, uh, a second edition of the book. Uh, would you change uh, anything? Would you would you add uh, more information? Would you um, give up uh, some arguments? What uh, what would uh, you say? Uh, what's uh, what's the plan here?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. Really good question. I think that one of the things I probably would have done more of. Um, would have been um, perhaps like expand more. Kind of back to one of your questions, actually. How how does this play out in other countries? Like, can you help us understand Canada in context? Like, how does this work in Switzerland, in Brazil, in you know? And you know, the book speaks to it, but there doesn't it doesn't have as big of a comparative lens. And so maybe this is for you know uh, you know uh, uh, an annex or something. But I think helpful contextualization of how Canada does this. And not just because I, I talk about the constitutional scheme, but like more broadly, how does inter- the internal trade market stack up against uh, our, our, our global competitors, our, our trading partners?
0: So uh, is this comparative study your new project uh, or uh, <laughs> what kind of projects do you have on your uh, on your desk uh, for the near future?
1: <laughs> um, on my desk right now is um, a lot of research on um, so standardizing. Like, there's two ways that you can achieve trade. Uh, I, I'm looking at I'm looking at giving policymakers as much specific guidance on how to um, operationalize uh, trade liberalization. Like, how can we actually solve this in specific scenarios? Like, I think we need a bunch of case studies. We need a bunch of examples. We need like playbooks to run on like the hundreds and thousands of trade barriers that exist. And like, how how do we handle this? Um, because, uh, you know, the, it, the frameworks existed for 30 years, Canada hopefully exists for at least another, you know, many hundreds of years. Like, how can we, how can we, build a model that grows, you know, Um, and how can we reform and improve the institutions that we have. So, you know, for example, I'm creating, you know, research and writing on how we can reform the dispute resolution mechanism, or how we can um, bring better uh, understanding and and use of other devices to liberalize trade. Um, How can we get creative about this, essentially?
0: Uh, in the book, um, you, uh, you say that uh, you have uh, four brothers. Are you four brothers or you are one of the four or you have four other brothers? And my question is, uh, did they like the book? Did uh, your parents like the book? Uh, and uh, what would they, what did they say you should change in the book. Uh, did they make any suggestions or they provided some of the cases, some of the examples that uh, you are working with? <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I have three brothers and I actually have to give credit. Um, they uh, definitely uh, uh, gave a lot of constructive uh, feedback and and, uh, and guidance. Um, I think one thing that they were really uh, helpful with was... Um, uh, you know, ensuring that uh, I <laughs> um, I didn't go down rabbit holes and uh, you know go insane during the writing process. I'm sure you've had folks in your ecosystem who, especially my wife, who uh, you know, ensuring that you know you, you know writing and research is it's a it's a marathon, not a sprint. And uh, so, uh, but also just you know feedback and, and guidance on the arguments, the construction, and and you know not trying to get too specific, like, you know, stay at, like, a a level where um, you're advocating for change and not getting too far into um, one particular issue. Like, they kept pulling me back, hey, what's the, bring me back to the story, right? Because I think what I was trying to do, the gap in the literature when I was writing this um, was something that brought together the whole story in a multidisciplinary fashion. And um, so just helping me remain true to that vision.
0: That's great. Yeah. Our guest today at New Books Network was Ryan Manucha, the author of Booze, Cigarettes, and Constitutional Dust-Ups Canada's Quest for Interprovincial Free Trade, published in 2022 by McGill-Queen's Press. Thank you, and hope we'll talk again soon uh, with your uh, new book. When uh, it will be, it will get published. (laughs) Goodbye. See you, see you. you, Ryan. Goodbye. Thank you so much.